Hello and welcome to Byzantium and the Crusades. My name is Nick Holmes and in this episode we're going to look at the disastrous conclusion of the Second Crusade, which stands in complete contrast to the spectacular success of the First Crusade. It also marked the turning point for the Crusaders as thereafter they faced a rising tide of Islamic power. As before, I'll read extracts from my abridged version of Sir Stephen Runciman's History of the Crusades. Hope you enjoy it. When news arrived on the 19th of March, 1148, that the French King Louis had landed at St. Simeon in the Principality of Antioch, Prince Raymond and all his household rode down from Antioch to welcome him and escort him up to the city. The next days were spent in feasting and merriment. The gallant nobles of Antioch did their best to please the Queen of France and the great ladies in her train, and in the cheerful weather of the Syrian spring amid the luxuries of the Antiochene court, the visitors forgot the hardships through which they had passed. As soon as they had recovered, Raymond began to discuss with the French leaders plans for a campaign against the infidel. Raymond hoped for great results from the coming of the crusade. His position was precarious. Nureddin was established now along the Christian frontier from Edessa to Harma and had spent the autumn of 1147 picking off one by one the Frankish fortresses east of the Orontes River. Count Jocelyn was fully occupied in holding his own at Turbacel. If the Muslims were to attack Antioch in force, the only power that could help Raymond was Byzantium, and the Byzantine troops might well arrive too late and would anyhow assist on a tighter subservience. Therefore, the French army, though the accidents of the journey had reduced its infantry strength, provided such formidable cavalry reinforcements that the Franks of Antioch would now be able to take the offensive. Raymond urged upon the French king that they should strike together at the heart of Nureddin's power, the city of Aleppo, and he induced many of the French knights to join him in a preliminary reconnaissance up to its walls to the consternation of its inhabitants. But when it came to the point King Louis hesitated. He said that his crusader vow obliged him first to go to Jerusalem before he started on any campaign. But the excuse was made to veil his indecision. All the princes of the Frankish East were demanding his help. Count Jocelyn hoped to use him for the recovery of Edessa, for had not its fall set the whole crusade in motion? Raymond of Tripoli, claiming a cousin's right, for his mother had been a French princess, sought his help for the recovery of the fortress of Montferrand. Then, in April, there arrived at Antioch the Patriarch of Jerusalem himself, sent by the High Court of the Kingdom, to beg him to hasten south and to tell him that King Conrad, the German king, was already in the Holy Land. In the end, a purely personal motive made up the king's mind for him. Queen Eleanor 
of France was far more intelligent than her husband. She saw at once the wisdom of Raymond's scheme, but her passionate and outspoken support of her uncle only roused King Louis's jealousy. Tongues began to wag. The queen and the prince of Antioch were seen too often together. It was whispered that Raymond's affection was more than avuncular. King Louis was alarmed for his honour and announced his immediate departure, whereat his queen declared that she at least would remain in Antioch and would seek a divorce from her husband. In reply, Louis dragged his wife by force from Prince Raymond's palace and set out with all his troops for Jerusalem. Meanwhile, the German king Conrad had landed at Acre with his chief princes in the middle of April and had been given a cordial and honourable reception at Jerusalem by Queen Melisande and her son. Similar honours were paid to the French king Louis on his entry into the Holy Land a month later. Never had Jerusalem seen so brilliant an assembly of knights and ladies, but there were many notable absentees. For example, Raymond of Antioch, furious at Louis's behaviour, washed his hands of the whole crusade. He could not in any case afford to leave his hard-pressed principality for some adventure in the south, nor could Count Jocelyn leave Turbacel. The Count of Tripoli's absence was due to a sinister family tragedy amongst the crusaders to take the vow with King Louis at Vézelay had been Alfonso Jordan, Count of Toulouse, with his wife and his children. He had travelled by sea from Constantinople and landed at Acre a few days after King Conrad. His arrival with a strong contingent had heartened the Franks in the east to whom he was a romantic figure, for he was the son of the old crusader Raymond of Toulouse, and he had been born in the east at Mount Pilgrim while his father was besieging Tripoli. But his coming was an embarrassment to the reigning Count of Tripoli, the grandson of old Count Raymond's bastard son, Bertrand. If Alfonso Jordan put in a claim to Tripoli, it would be hard to deny it, and it seems that he liked to mention his rights. But what happened next was a truly bizarre incident, for on his way up to Jerusalem from Acre, he paused at Caesarea, and there, quite suddenly, he died in agony. It may have been some acute illness, such as appendicitis, that caused his death, but everyone at once suspected poison, and the dead man's son, Bertrand, openly accused his cousin, Raymond of Tripoli, of instigating the murder. Others believed that the culprit was Queen Melisande, acting at the behest of her beloved sister, the Countess Hodierna, Raymond's wife. Nothing was proven, but Raymond, in his indignation at the charge, abstained from any dealings with the crusade. Therefore, although the lords of Antioch and Tripoli were absent, the kings of France and Germany arrived in the kingdom of Jerusalem. There, Queen Melisande and her son, who was now King Baldwin III, invited them to attend a great assembly to be held at Acre on the 24th of June 1148. It was an impressive gathering. The hosts were King Baldwin and the patriarch Fulcair, with the archbishops of Caesarea and Nazareth, the grand masters of the temple and the hospital, and the leading prelates and barons of the kingdom. They settled down to discuss which Muslim city 
to attack. We do not know what was the course of the debate, nor who made the final proposal. But we do know that after some opposition, the Assembly decided to concentrate all its strength on an attack against Damascus. It was a decision of utter folly. Damascus would indeed be a rich prize, and its possession by the Franks would entirely cut off the Muslims of Egypt and Africa from those in northern Syria and the east. But of all the Muslim states, the buried kingdom of Damascus alone was eager to remain in friendship with the Franks, for, like the far-sighted among the Franks, it recognised its chief foe to be Nureddin. Frankish interests lay in retaining Damascene friendship till Nureddin should be crushed and keep open the breach between Damascus and Aleppo. To attack the former was, as the events of the previous year had shown, the surest way to throw its rulers into Nureddin's hands. But the barons of Jerusalem coveted the fertile lands that owed allegiance to Damascus, and they smarted under the recollection of their recent humiliation for which their high-spirited young king must have longed for revenge. To the visiting Crusaders, Aleppo meant nothing, but Damascus was a city hallowed in the Bible, whose rescue from the infidel would resound to the glory of God. It is idle to try to apportion blame for the decision, but a greater responsibility must lie with the local barons who knew the situation than with the newcomers to whom all Muslims were the same. The Christian army, the greatest that the Franks had ever put into the field, set out from Galilee through Banyas in the middle of July. On Saturday the 24th of July, it encamped on the edge of the gardens and orchards that surrounded Damascus. The emir of Damascus, Unur, had not at first taken the news of the crusade very seriously. He had heard of its heavy losses in Anatolia, and in any case, he hadn't expected it to make Damascus its objective. When he discovered the truth, he hastily ordered his provincial governors to send him all the men that they could spare, and a messenger hurried off to Aleppo to ask for help from Nureddin. The Franks first halted at Manakil al-Askia, some four miles to the south of the city, whose white walls and towers gleamed through the thick foliage of the orchards. But they moved quickly up to the better-watered village of Almiza. The Damascene army attempted to hold them there, but was forced to retire behind the walls. On their victory, the Crusader leaders sent the army of Jerusalem into the orchards to clear them of guerrilla fighters. By afternoon, the orchards to the south of the city were in the possession of the Franks, who were building palisades out of the trees that they cut down. Next, Thanks chiefly to King Conrad's personal bravery, they forced their way to Rabwa on the river Barada right under the walls of the city. The citizens of Damascus thought now that all was lost and began to barricade the streets, ready for the last desperate struggle. But next day the tide turned. The reinforcements summoned by Unur began to pour in through the north gates of the city and with their help he launched a counterattack which drove the Christians back from the walls. He repeated the attacks during the next two days while guerrilla fighters penetrated once more into the gardens and orchards. So dangerous were their actions to the camp that King Conrad, King Louis and Baldwin met together and decided to evacuate the orchards south of the city and to move eastward to encamp in a spot where the enemy could fight 
find no such cover. On the 27th of July, the whole Frankish army moved to the plain outside the east wall. It was a disastrous decision. For the new site lacked water and faced the strongest section of the wall of Damascus. And Damascene sally parties could now move freely about the orchards. Indeed, many of the Frankish soldiers believed that the Palestinian barons who advised the kings must have been bribed by Unur to suggest it. For with this move, the last chance of their taking Damascus vanished. Anur, whose troops were increasing in number and who knew that Nureddin was on his way southward, renewed his attacks on the Frankish camp. It was the crusading army, not the beleaguered city, that was now on the defensive. While discouragement and murmurs of treachery passed through the Christian army, its leaders openly quarrelled over the future of Damascus when they should capture it. The barons of the kingdom of Jerusalem expected Damascus to be incorporated as a fief of the kingdom and had agreed that its lord should be Guy Brisebar, the lord of Beirut, whose candidature was, it seems, confirmed by Queen Melisande, but resisted by others in the kingdom. Much more importantly, Nureddin was already at Homs, negotiating the terms of his aid to Unur. His troops must, he demanded, be allowed entry into Damascus, and Unur was playing for time. The Frankish army was in a difficult position before Damascus. It could expect no reinforcements, whereas in a few days, Nureddin's men could be in the field. If they arrived, not only might the whole crusade force be annihilated, but Damascus would surely pass into Nureddin's power. The Palestinian barons were all now too late convinced of the folly of continuing the war against Damascus and they pressed their views on King Conrad and King Louis. The Westerners were shocked. They could not follow the subtle political arguments but they knew that without the help of the local Franks there was little to be done. The kings complained publicly of the disloyalty that they had found amongst them and of their lack of fervour for the cause but they ordered the retreat. At dawn on Wednesday the 28th of July, the fifth day after their arrival before Damascus, the Crusaders packed up their camp and began to move back towards Galilee. The emir Unur did not let them depart in peace. All day long and during the next few days, Turkoman light horsemen hung on their flanks, pouring arrows into their masses. The road was littered with corpses of men and horses whose stench polluted the plain for many months to come. Early in August, the great expedition returned to Palestine and the local troops went home. All that it had accomplished was to lose many of its men and much of its material and to suffer a terrible humiliation. That so splendid an army should have abandoned its objective after only four days of fighting was a bitter blow to Christian prestige. The legend of invincible knights from the West built up during the great adventure of the First Crusade was utterly shattered. The spirits of the Muslim world, however, revived. After the disastrous end of the crusade, the German King Conrad did not linger in Palestine. Together with his household, he embarked from Acre on the 8th of September on a ship bound for Byzantine Thessalonica. When he landed there, he received a pressing invitation from the Byzantine Emperor Manuel to spend Christmas at the imperial court. There was now perfect concord between the two monarchs. Though his young nephew Frederick might continue to bear rancour against the Byzantines, blaming them for the German losses in Anatolia, Conrad only thought of the value 
of the Byzantine Emperor Manuel's alliance against King Roger of Sicily, and he was captivated by Manuel's personal charm and his delightful hospitality. During his visit, the marriage of his brother, Henry of Austria, to Manuel's niece, Theodora, was celebrated with the greatest pomp. Shocked Byzantines wept to see the lovely young princess sacrificed to so barbarous a fate. Quote, immolated to the beast of the West, end quote, as a court poet wrote sympathetically to her mother. But the wedding marked the complete reconciliation of the German and Byzantine courts. When Conrad left Constantinople in February 1149 to return to Germany, an alliance had been made between them against Roger of Sicily, whose lands on the Italian peninsula it was proposed to divide. Meanwhile, while Conrad enjoyed the comforts of Constantinople, the French king Louis lingered on in Palestine. The abbot Suger wrote to him again and again to beg him to come back to France, but he could not make up his mind. Doubtless he wished to spend an Easter at Jerusalem. His return would, he knew, also be followed by a divorce with his wife Eleanor of Aquitaine, who he was convinced had been unfaithful to him with Prince Raymond of Antioch and this would have tremendous political consequences. So he sought to postpone the evil day. In the meantime, while King Conrad renewed his friendship with Byzantium, Louis's resentment against the Byzantine Empire increased the more he thought of it. He changed his policy and sought the alliance of the enemy of Byzantium, Roger of Sicily. His quarrel with Raymond of Antioch had removed the chief obstacles of this alliance, which would enable him to gratify his hatred of Byzantium. At last, in the early summer of 1149, Louis left Palestine in a Sicilian ship, which soon joined the Sicilian squadron cruising in eastern Mediterranean waters. The Sicilian war against Byzantium was still in progress, and as the fleet rounded the Peloponnese in Greece, it was attacked by ships of the Byzantine navy. King Louis hastily gave orders for the French flag to be flown on his vessel and therefore was allowed to sail on. But a ship containing many of his followers and his possessions was captured and taken as a war prize to Constantinople. Many months passed before the Byzantine emperor would agree to send back the men and the goods to France. King Louis landed in southern Italy at the end of July and was received by King Roger at Potenza. The Sicilian at once suggested the launching of a new crusade whose first objective should be to take vengeance on Byzantium. Louis and his advisers readily agreed and went on to France telling everyone as they went of the treachery of the Byzantines and the need to punish them. But the Germans would not agree to this. King Conrad opposed an attack on Byzantium and with his opposition the scheme had to be dropped. The great betrayal of Byzantium was thereby postponed for another half a century. In conclusion, it can be said that no medieval enterprise started with more splendid hopes than the Second Crusade. Planned by the Pope, preached and inspired by the golden eloquence of St Bernard, and led by the two chief potentates of Western Europe, it had promised so much for the glory and salvation of Christendom. But when it reached its ignominious end in the weary retreat from Damascus, 
All that it had achieved had been to embitter the relations between the Western Christians and the Byzantines almost to breaking point, to separate the Western Frankish princes from each other, to draw the Muslims closer together, and to do deadly damage to the reputation of the Franks for military prowess. The French might seek to throw the blame for the fiasco on Byzantium, But, in fact, the crusade was brought to nothing by its leaders with their truculence, their ignorance and their ineffectual folly. And that ends this episode. Hope you enjoyed it. As always, I'd be hugely grateful if you left any ratings. Thank you so much. And in the next episode, we'll hear how the tide now started to turn against the Crusaders.